Welcome back to Leviticus class. Today we're planning to look at Leviticus 11 through 15 together. Lord willing, if you want to turn there in your Bible. This is a, a text in Scripture that's known for being perplexing to readers, difficult to understand. So I started studying for this lesson back in November because I wanted to be able to, to make sure I understood these things correctly and could teach them effectively. And that being said, I recognize that it, it takes a lot of time to grasp some of the things that are taught here, and I don't want to uh, rush on to the, the next lesson until we all feel like we're ready to move on. So I'm very much willing to change my entire teaching calendar for the whole year to slow down here if need be. Here in Leviticus 11 through 15, some of the things that are perplexing and strange to us is these words clean and unclean and animals and why did Israelites have to eat this way and you hear that uh, giving birth to a child is unclean and the woman has to give a sin offering for that. Uh, you hear about you know, how they would priests would deal with people who had different types of skin diseases or mold in their houses, how they were to cleanse these things, and bodily discharges of fluid. What in the world do these things have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, in trying to teach these things, what we're going to, to look at as a, as a whole is how this was understood within its original historical setting so that we can understand the theological point so that we can make application to us today. So we're going to look at the history, the theology, and the application. Now, when you guys just kind of glance over Leviticus 11 and you read about these clean and unclean animals and stuff, how many of you have ever heard a sermon or a teaching on this text? All right, at least nobody wants to raise their hand and say that, that they have. The, the reality is you have. This text gets preached a lot in the Bible. In fact, I think as you learn Leviticus more, you're actually going to, to find out that the book of Romans is based on the book of Leviticus. And a lot of these things you've already heard about in the New Testament, uh, that is the theology of the, the dietary laws. You might think of Mark 7 when Jesus, he declared all foods clean, and he said, that which proceeds out of the man is that which defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart, proceeds evil thoughts, which has shown you that the way that Jesus interpreted Leviticus 11 was, it wasn't about a particular diet that was better than others. It wasn't something that was about hygiene. It was something about instructing and teaching somebody about holiness and their own hearts. Another place where you've heard teaching on this is in Acts 10. You might remember a time when Peter said, Lord, I won't, I won't eat pork unless pigs fly. And so they did. And what Peter learned on that day was the purpose of diet was always tied to teaching of people about how they viewed other people in the world as either in God's kingdom or outside of God's kingdom. And the, the animals themselves were never unclean. They were unclean in the teaching model, but in, not in actuality, which is the same thing that Peter was to learn about the, the Gentile Cornelius. You know, salvation was to extend to the Gentiles as well, which was the purpose of the dietary laws, was to be a witness to the surrounding nations during that time. And Peter learned it's, it's the same intent that God has with, the, with our diet, is it's to be used to be a holy witness 
to other people. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we, this is the, the text when we get to the end of this chapter that is maybe the most familiar teaching we have on Leviticus 11 to us, which is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all things to the glory of God. Which is how I came up with this title for this section, God is holy in our preferences. You know, He's not just holy in how we gather together and do Sunday school class or main service or things like that, but even in, in your preferences, you consider what is holy to, to God. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, this is a, a text that's about conscience issues. You know, what if a, an unbeliever has you over to their house and they want to feed you pork? Then just eat it. But what if they say, this pork has been sacrificed to the idol that I worship? Well, now you're not eating that pork because you're recognizing, you know, Mr. Idolater, worshiper guy. It's not that I can't eat that particular food, but it's because it's being offered in thanks not to the one who gave it. So you see there's an issue of witness in food choices that we read about there. Also in 2 Corinthians 6, you might remember that text about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know, this was teaching that came from these dietary laws and that for Israel, they weren't to be unequally yoked with the Canaanites you know, paired with them, like they would just combine some of the stuff they learned in Egypt in their worship and some of the things that they liked from the Canaanites. But there in that text, in speaking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers, it says, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Now, I want, I want you to hear how that word unclean is being used and that it's not about touching something that, that looks filthy, but it's always tied in to how, how somebody worships God. And that's part of the challenge to understanding some of the things in Leviticus 11 to 15 is just how we tend to hear the words clean and unclean. I'm not aware of an English word that really actually carries across the Hebrew concept of clean and unclean, which we're going to talk about that some more, but this is a good reminder for us in reading our Bibles to know that they weren't originally given in the English language. We're reading a book that is ancient. We're reading a book that had its uh, origination in a time in which we don't live anymore. So we, we have to reconstruct the historical setting as much as we can so we can understand what was being understood then. And when we hear these words clean and unclean, we shouldn't just assume they mean what we think that they mean, but they, they mean, the meaning is found in how they're used. So you want to look at these words and say, well, how was this word clean and this word unclean being used in the context of Israel's worship? But you see, it's, it was used in the context of their worship. It was related to things that can be in the tabernacle and things that cannot be in there. Unclean stuff cannot go in there. So this is something that is a difference between our worship and theirs. We don't have a, a physical tabernacle where if you brought things that were unclean in it yourself or other objects, you were dead. But the physical presence of God is what made these laws necessary, and all of this is, a, a, again, it's a teaching model. It was so that God could teach them to understand the difference between the holy and the profane, the clean and unclean, as He defined them. So we already have some familiarity with the purpose of the dietary laws from you know, some of these New Testament texts that we've looked at. And I'm sure you, you'll all remember in First Peter where he quotes Leviticus 11. 
as he, as he writes in 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So these dietary laws are going to inform us about holiness in all of our conduct. It, it shapes your worldview and it prepares you to be a witness for God. That is what this text is about. It all boils down to our hearts being about His holiness in everything that we do, even down to our preferences so that we can be a faithful witness to His kingdom to come. Now, these texts, as we look through them, I mean, even right now, I can see it on your faces. Like, well, I'm talking about it. Like, what is all of this stuff, and how does this make any sense? We'll get there over time. But while these texts are, are difficult, and we're maybe disconnected from really understanding them immediately in the culture, they're not unclear. And these difficult texts are God-inspired. God-inspired, difficult Bible text. And it's like, well, why did he do that? And I think one of the reasons is so that we would pray. So they would pray that God would give us understanding and so that we would have a greater delight in the treasures that we would find and the difficult digging that we would do in the minds of Scripture. So let's begin in prayer as we continue to approach this text. Our gracious Lord, you are the holy God of light. We pray that you would give light upon this text, and after you've given light, that you would give more light and greater understanding of your glory and holiness until we come to the day that that's all that there is, just light and holiness. Give us understanding of this text, deeper delight in you. Give us clarity an increased awe of who you are, a matured worship in you, a deeper delight in you, a greater hatred for sin and the things that are not how they should be with a greater longing for the world that is to come, remembering the certain hope that we have in you that you will make all things holy, all things clean, that everything will be in your dwelling place again soon. Amen. You may recall in Leviticus 10, the tragedy of Nadab and Abihu on the grand opening of tabernacle worship and some of God's priest servers serving something that wasn't on the menu, and so they got fired. And the controlling text of that particular chapter in chapter 10 was verses 8 through 11. This, this is the point which I want to bring back to mind, Leviticus 10, 8 through 11. Yahweh then spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to separate between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to instruct the sons of Israel in all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. After Nadab and Abihu were consumed from offering that strange fire before Yahweh which He had not commanded them, you can imagine how the, the priest became very interested in being able to separate the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean. It became an immediate and top priority, not for tomorrow, today. We need to know this today. And they wanted to know this not only in sacrifices, but they said, we need to know this not just in the sacrificial system, we need to know this in everything that we do 
even breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And what you see in this text is that considering God's holiness involves the most mundane activities such as eating, that it includes the, mo the most momentous occasions such as childbirth. It concerns the most personal issues like skin diseases and house mold, and it involves the most private matters that other people would never even know about, like the discharge of fluid from your body, which you had no control over. God is teaching a people how to separate the holy and profane in every aspect of their life, from the small things to the big things to the personal things to the most private things, so that they would always have an eye toward how things are supposed to be, which you can think about that here in the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle was a picture of what? It was a picture of Eden. It was a picture of this is how things are supposed to be. But they recognized that while they could look toward that, they weren't there. They could look at it, but they couldn't go there unless they were clean because there were things that were parts of their life now that weren't like that kingdom that was and is to come. Looking at Leviticus 11, the text begins, Yahweh spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cut among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, you shall not eat of these among those which chew the cut or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews cut, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. So we start to see throughout this text that there's certain animals that are unclean. And if you continue reading through that, you see that these animals are laid out in accordance to their kind. There's beasts of the field, there's birds of the air, and then those creatures that come out of the sea, and then those things that crawl around on the ground. And they're all laid out in the order that they were created. This is going to be important because you remember in creation week, God ordered everything, which is where we see this teaching model of the tabernacle. There's a movement to order. There's a movement to back to Eden, which is also a, a forward to the new Jerusalem at the same time. But to not be moving toward going back to Eden is to be moving toward disorder and chaos, which starts to build out our understanding of what it means to be holy. Holy is everything ordered as God had intended it in creation. And what you remember that you know, after God had made everything, we come to the seventh day and He made it holy. So you see, holy is when everything is as it ought to be which relates to this word clean. It clean is that which is rightly ordered in worship to God. But it's that stuff that it looks like that time when humanity was worshiping God in Eden. It's all the stuff that looks like the world that is to come. That's what clean is. And the controlling text, just like we had a controlling text in chapter 10, we have a controlling text for understanding chapters 11 through 15, which is found in 11, chapter 11, verses 44 to 47. And I want to read those together as we continue here. This is the controlling text of these chapters beginning in verse 44, 1144. For I am Yahweh your God. Therefore set yourselves apart as holy, and be holy for I am holy. 
And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that move on the earth. For I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the water and everything that swarms on the earth to separate between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. Now, when you think through this text, you know, human reason might lead you to think that this perplexing text must be hygienic lessons from a divine FDA. But this text does not say, set yourselves apart as hygienic. The text says what it's actually about. It's about setting ourselves apart as holy to God. It's about what the author intended and not a thought that the reader invented. And all of Israel was to be a holy what, according to Scripture. They were to be a holy priesthood. It wasn't just the Levites that were to be priests, but the whole nation was to be mediators of God's presence to the world. They were to be in the image of God, little mirrors who were reflecting what God was like in the world. They were to mediate God's holy presence to the nations. Therefore, they needed to know how to be holy in absolutely everything in their lives, down to the most mundane, ordinary thing of eating. God was to be holy even in their eating preferences. Well, why, why was this so important for the sons of Israel in their childhood, which is a good way to think about it, and that, you know, this nation had just been born. They're starting to learn some things in the house of Moses and be parented in God's holy ways. Well, they, they needed to be protected. That's one thing. They needed to be protected from the idolatry of the nations. Uh, they were already well-steeped in that and easily influenced by it. You know, just read the rest of your Bible. You know, when they, when they hung around that bad kid at school, they always brought bad stuff home. They had to be taught, you can't go to ki that kid's house. <laughs> because every time you do, you bring unclean things back home. But this was also to provide for the children of Israel so that they could discern between forbidden fruit and God's command, that which was lawful. A third reason, not only to protect them and to provide for them, but it was also to guide them, to guide them in being a witness to the nations who, when they found out that these people had a peculiar diet, they would ask, why do you eat like that? They would ask for a reason for the hope that they had in Yahweh. You know, think about it like that. Maybe a more clear example is remembering how diet was used as witness to the nations with Daniel and his friends. When you start reading the first chapter of Daniel, you know, the, the point wasn't that uh, being vegetarian is superior but it was to show that there's a distinction between our God and yours, you know, the, and that they couldn't eat certain food. What it distanced them from was false worship, but it also provided them an opportunity to say, this is what our God is like, and He's the only one, which you remember Peter, as we already talked about from Acts 10 and 11 and how Scripture developed from the Daniel diet to the Peter diet, which is rise, kill, and eat, which I'd like to write a book on it someday because it's a good diet. It includes, you know, exercise, killing an animal, eating it. It has meat in it. But the point that you see is that 
what continues from Daniel diet to Peter diet is the witness to the nations. You know, you think about what you're eating in relation to how other people in the culture would think about it so that you can show them that you're set apart to God even in how you eat so that you can, your life would be like a gospel tract that would provide an opportunity to speak about your holy God. Now, the tabernacle, as we've talked about, was a teaching model concerning holiness and clean and unclean. Now, what's important to recognize here is that this is all within the Mosaic Israelite covenant. And what a covenant is about is relationship. What a covenant does is it, it establishes a new relationship where there, there wasn't one previously. So these words, holy, are related to covenant relationship. Clean and unclean are related to covenant relationship. These words have to do with your relationship to God, uh, being closer to Him. Uh, you could think about it uh, like a guy, he wants to go on a date with this girl, but she doesn't like to eat at that place. She likes to eat at this other place. So you go to the place where she prefers so that you can be closer to her. You see, and also you recognize that if I don't take a shower, she's going to sit further from me. I need to be clean so that the relationship has a closer proximity. All analogies fail at some extent, so don't overthink it. But the point is that, that you know, the, the cleaner you are, the closer you are in relationship to God. The, the idea of clean is this concept of what we might call uh, progressive sanctification. It's like, how do you grow closer to God? How do you grow in holiness? How do you get nearer to Him? Well, it involves every aspect of life. And in the Holy Tabernacle, what I've drawn here is a, a way to, to, to help us grasp this idea of clean and unclean in relation to order and worship and being nearer to God. And what you see here in the tabernacle, you have holy and clean. And the tabernacle in representing Eden also represents a particular kingdom. And that kingdom is represented by a tree that was back in Eden, which I have drawn here to look not only like a tree, but also like the lampstand and the tabernacle. You just thought it was a poorly drawn tree. It is more than that. It's a representation of the lampstand, which was a representation of the tree of life, which was a representation of God's kingdom of life. And in that kingdom, things are holy and clean. But what you don't have there in there is you don't have unclean. There is no unclean in the tabernacle. There's no unclean in God's kingdom. There's, there's no disorder. There's no things that are unique to this life that are brought into that place. I don't want to keep that, this too abstract here, but I'll give you, maybe it'd be good here to add in this example of like childbirth that we're going to talk about in Leviticus 11. The childbirth, when it's called unclean, it's not to say that it's sinful. It's a good and necessary thing. You can't live without it. But it's not part of what God's kingdom in the future is going to be like. There isn't going to be childbirth and the pain of it and the blood loss. That's why it's unclean, because it's not something that's going to be there. It's not something that belongs in this clean status and condition that's here. But we don't live in the kingdom of the tree of life right now. We've been separated from that, and we live in this kingdom that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's this tree, which 
you can see the tension that there is in this kingdom. There's good and evil. There's clean and unclean, which you see there's this commonality in that there's clean, there's clean out here in this kingdom, and there's clean in this other one. So there's that commonality, but there's this tension that there's also unclean. So the idea here is that there's things in this life that are like being in Eden. There's things in this life that's like the world to come. And those are the clean things, things that are ordered the way that they're going to be in the future. Is that clear or do you have any questions at this point? The clean and unclean laws in this world and the kingdom of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they, they show degrees of separation from God. So that's where we talk about this. This is all about progressive sanctification. It's you can be moving towards un, uncleanliness, away from being set apart to God, or you can be moving toward cleanness, which is a nearness to life in God. You can be moving away towards things that resemble death and lead to death, or you can be moving towards things that represent uh, life in God. And something that's worth noting here is how much greater our worship is within the new covenant. Can you even think in this model, un unclean people couldn't even get in, into the tabernacle precinct. But the priest could get closer, and the high priest could get the closest, but if you could get into the holy place and stay there, then you could have a closer relationship to God than even the high priest of Israel has, which is exactly what is described in Hebrews 10 when it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It's like, you can walk in there and not die because of the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see this, there's, you know, the, the tabernacle is nearing in on the whole creation. It's extending to the ends of the earth. You know, things being set apart as holy to God is being consumed, but at the same time, His people are progressing in nearness to that day and in their fellowship together, drawing near by being made clean from the things of this life and set apart to the things of the next. You can think of it as you know, clean and unclean has to, to deal with living out where you think you actually have citizenship. You know, if you think you have citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, then, you know, cleanliness is moving toward living out that citizenship until the city comes. But uncleanness is to be given to thinking that your citizenship is stuck in this world and you're given to the things that are passing away the things that are going to be the former things and not the forever things. To move towards cleanness is to move nearer to God rather than further from God, to be moving toward order rather than disorder, moving toward new creation rather than old creation moving toward the things that reflect life to come and away from the things that don't. 
this text as a whole moves from teaching the doctrine of progressive sanctification to glorification, what things will be like in the future and what they'll be like forever. So why were certain foods chosen and not others for the Israelites? This is the historical question that we've considered in part. But there were certain animals that were associated either with death or disgustingness within the culture. And they were not to eat animals associated with death. They didn't eat animals who were known killers. Or they didn't eat animals that people thought, the stuff that that animal does is disgusting. I was like, well, why, why do they do this? Well, because God's holiness is incompatible with death. That was the lesson in the teaching model. And God's holiness is incompatible with disgusting. God is not the God of death or disgusting. That's the theological point. God is not the God of death or disgusting. So now, thinking about application, well, how would this affect, you know, Israel and their witness? Well, Mr. Canaanite would say, Mr. Israelite, why do you not eat pork? Mr. Israelite would say, even though every society around us eats pork, which people associate with death and disgusting, we don't because our God is not the God of disgusting and death. Our God is not unclean. He does not delight in death. Our God is a God of life, and He is holy, so we will be different than you. Or you could think about this in relation to our witness in 1 Corinthians 10 as we talked about that, where Mr. Pagan says to Mr. Christian, why will you not eat the meat consecrated to idols with me? I saw you eating the same meat yesterday in the marketplace. To which Mr. Christian responds, the food itself is not the issue. It's who is being thanked in the eating of it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I am choosing to not eat what I could eat, to, to honor the only true God who gives all food so that you might come to know the good of giving thanks to the only one who actually provided what you're eating and not to give that thanks to another. And as you know, that chapter ends with saying, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. So you see that concept of how God is holy in our preferences. You know, it might be your preference to just go ahead and eat the meat sacrificed to the idol. And he says, I'm not thinking about what I want. I'm not thinking about my preferences. I'm thinking about how can I do something that's going to build up other people in knowing Christ? You know, that's the way I think, and that's the way that I make decisions, even down to my food preferences. Now, these dietary laws in Leviticus 11, they're not universal. That is, they're not for everybody. They're also not eternal. You know, they don't continue on forever and ever. So, you didn't sin when you ate pig last week at the fellowship mill. So, they don't apply, to, apply in practice to everybody. They had a temporary purpose, but the principles that were taught within them still remain. Just as Jesus taught in Mark 7, it's not the food that goes into the body that defiles the person, but it's what comes out of the heart. It's when sin is inside of you and comes out of you. That's how you're defiled. It's not by food. Or in Acts 10 and 11 again, when Peter had his dream of eating bacon only when pigs fly, it was about his worldview and how he would see Cornelius and preaching Christ to the Gentiles and being a witness to the nations. Or 1 Corinthians 10, as we talked about, it's about conscience issues with believers and unbelievers concerning building up other people in Christ, being a witness for Christ even in our food choices. These laws were not hygiene lessons but holiness lessons. You know, Peter's vision wasn't a recommendation 
to eat dangerous food, but it was about protection from unholy worship and growing in holy worship and being a holy witness. And these laws all communicate a recognition that of God's order in the world, that God is in charge here. He orders everything in life, not just some things like Sunday worship or annual Bible reading, but everything, whether you eat or drink, everything you consider in light of being holy to the Lord. These animals, as we talked about, they matched the order of creation. They looked forward to a day when everything would be ordered the way that it was meant to be. And it was a reminder that things, things are not as they ought to be. Humanity is not in unity eating at the same table in the same kingdom. So you can see that separation in their diet and Israel's relation to the other nations. They weren't in unity eating at the same table in the same kingdom. Some were outside, others were inside, but insiders were the ones who had the privilege of proclaiming how you could have a seat at that table. Redeemed life is meant to be a continual movement towards how things are meant to be rather than how things are. So you see that in their worship. They're always moving toward how things are going to be. This was teaching the Israelites eschatology and protology at the same time to connect the first things and that's how I like to put emphasis on certain points. <laughs> so it was connecting for them, understanding how things begin and how things would finish, all in relation to God's holiness. Now you remember Israel's worship was a teaching model and a gospel tract. It was for discipleship and evangelism. You know, God was teaching them through the teaching model how they were to live for them, but He was also using that to teach them how to be witnesses to the outside world. And in the teaching model, pigs were unclean for purposes of teaching a people to discern what kind of worship honors God and what kind doesn't. But outside of the teaching model, in reality, the pigs were clean. But the point was, fellowshipping with darkness is not clean. Becoming the sanctuary of the living God separates us from a commonness to unbelievers to a holiness to God, which is when you get to Paul addressing the Corinthians, he says, you guys are this. You're the sanctuary. You're all many temples that are moving around the, the planet as priests who are mediating the presence of God to everybody to show them what is holy, what is clean, what is the world going to be like to come for those who bow the knee to the king of creation. Those who have been redeemed of the Lord make it their aim to please God in everything, uh, even our food preferences and concerns to how we can be a witness to unbelievers, which maybe you've heard of or read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And one of those that he, one of the resolutions he had was to eat only that food which makes me fit to minister unto the Lord and to be a witness for His gospel cause. You know, that's how we should think about food. You know, what's going to give me energy for ministry? You know, what food choice right now is going to, to help me to build up other believers in the body of Christ? What food choices right now are going to help me as a witness to Christ? You see, what's being taught here is that holiness is a more basic priority than eating and drinking. You need holiness more than you need breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And holiness involves not only eating and drinking, but whatever you do, it's all-encompassing. It's every aspect of life always being able to point back to God's Word 
as the explanation for what you do. So you can say, I made this decision because just as Yahweh commanded. So you can show how all decisions and all thinking in life are in conformity to what your God has instructed you and how to live for Him. Holiness is living like a citizen of God's future kingdom until the kingdom comes to its waiting citizenship. All right, do you guys have any, any questions at this point? Yes, sir. Why were they deemed what? They weren't labeled as food of darkness, but that which was unclean. And that was because of their association with death and disgustingness. So the Canaanite worship around them, they would include the slaughtering of pigs in worship to their gods. And so for Israel to not partake in doing that was just to show our worship is different than yours. But pigs were also recognized for being disgusting for flopping around in the mud and the such. And it was a way for the Israelites to understand our God is not like that. You know, he's not the God of disgusting or of false worship that is involved in the death that is brought about in Canaanite worship where they were sacrificing animals and their children. You know, they were sacrificing the things that resembled life in their mind in order to what they thought they were doing was promoting life by bringing about more death. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let's look at Leviticus 12 and discuss childbirth here. How is, how is childbirth related to this concept of unclean? Birth here deals with, you know, we're, we're making a movement from the small things of life, eating, to the big things of life, childbirth, which what's being communicated is God's holy in both, small things, big things. And God is holy in the most momentous event of a woman giving birth, in which it speaks that she'll be clean after seven days. Like, why would she be clean after seven days? Which, think about the concept of clean. It was, you know, she'll be ready to return back to worship. You could think of this, this was like maternity leave. It wasn't you're being punished because giving birth to a child is nasty. Don't come back for a week. But it, it, was, it was a merciful sort of thing where God said, you can rest. You don't have to, to, you're not obligated to show up and give sacrifices after you just gave birth to a child. So it was a mercy to the woman. It was a sort of maternity leave. And, you know, why was it seven days? Well, this is tied to another theological thing in that because... If she had a male child, he was circumcised on the eighth day, which was another theological teaching point about how all of Israel was to be you know, cut off from this life and set apart to new life in God. And within childbirth, it focuses in on you know, the blood for her cleansing within this. And blood was tied not only to the concept of life, which we'll read about, but it was tied to death, which is what was unclean about it. So it's like, you know, there's blood involved. And, and blood is the stuff of this life, but not the next. Blood is something that reminds us of death more than it does life. Blood is stuff that's of the world of good and evil and not of the kingdom of the tree of life. 
holiness was so pervasive for the person who desired to honor God and even how they were to, to handle blood and to think about God's instruction even in that because the blood would testify to the fact that God makes the unholy holy. And there's a lot that's tied up into the, the childbirth concept because it's how God would build His kingdom of future sons through His Son. It was His plan for spreading His glory to the ends of the earth through the crown and glory of His creation, which was man. But what happens in a woman giving birth is that it breaks the order of what is normal. So that's the idea of unclean. It's normal in this kingdom to be worshiping God unprevented, unhindered. Uncleanness is when that gets disrupted. Childbirth disrupts the ordered worship of continually being in God's presence and worshiping Him. So like when we hear unclean, we think it like, like it's a bad thing. It's not, unclean does not mean abomination. It doesn't mean unrighteous. It just means it's something that's outside of orderly worship as God has ordained it as a picture of what will be when everything is restored in holiness. And men will not be given in marriage or procreate anymore. Childbirth is very this world and not the next. And blood was a reminder, as we had mentioned, of death and life. And the blood alone communicated the tension of living in the land of the dying with an eye towards living in the land of the God of Abraham, the God of the living. Childbirth and blood pointed to the tension of the suffering and birth pains of this life, which are ultimately transformed by a son and his blood, where his death defeats death and brings us into the kingdom of the tree of life. Another <laughs> perplexing thing when you read about this is in verse 8, chapter 12, verse 8, it says of the woman which this ties into Mary, you'll remember this. You know, she, but if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Like, a sin offering for having a kid? Man, it would be better translated a purification offering or a, you know, a restoration to worship offering. And you get that in the next words that follow, it says, and the priest shall make atonement for her, which we had talked about, you know, this word atonement isn't only specific to the forgiveness of sins, but being dedicated to the Lord. You know, the, the priest will make dedication for her, and she will be clean. Now, usually what you've been reading when we hear this phrase, you'll hear, and the priest will make atonement for him, and his sins will be forgiven. Now notice, it does not say that here. It does not say her sins will be forgiven. It says she'll be clean. She'll be ready to return back to ordered worship, you know, uh, unto the Lord. It's not a sinful thing that has happened. It's just a this-worldly thing that has happened that's going to go away someday. And this chapter... Leviticus 12 and moving forward would be how God would teach the Israelites a doctrine of glorification. That's what's happening here. He's teaching them to look forward and hope to the world to come, to God's glory extending to the ends of the earth, to everything being consumed back into His holiness, to their only being that which is clean and rightly ordered in worship to God. Now, childbirth, as we've discussed, it's something that it's good and it's necessary. It's part of God's plan, but the pain of it and the pain of all of this life is not to be associated with the life that is in God's holy, clean dwelling place. 
which when you come back to reading about Eden and the tabernacle again at the very end of your Bible in Revelation 21, this is pain is a former thing. It's not here anymore. Crying, no more. Disease, no more. All of those things are gone now, and there's nothing unclean here, nor will there be. So it takes this, this kingdom of, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, and it just chops off the end evil and throws it into the lake of fire, and it's gone. And we return back to the days of, and it was good. Right now, we live in the tension of the kingdom of there being good and evil while waiting for the days in which we live only in good and life, which you see that also in Revelation 22 when the tree of life shows back up in the Bible, when we're restored to that kingdom of life and the tree which represents that place. God's holiness is a reminder that all aspects of life are set apart to growing in holiness while looking forward to the day of holiness. And it's a reminder to pursue Christian growth with a Christian hope. So what I'm tying together there is that concept of there's progressive sanctification that leads to glorification. There's this growing in holiness until we live in the holy land. The goal of our redemption is being glorified with a body that's like our resurrected Lord in glory when we get a body that's death-proof, a body that is sin-proof, a body that is time-proof. And it's because of that and looking forward in that hope that we purify ourselves today, looking forward to that hope, and that enables us to, to live above the concerns of this life, to not be anxious about anything and to, to spend ourselves and be spent for God's gospel kingdom cause. Because you know that when you wear out this old earth suit, you can trade it in for a new model that doesn't have any of the old model's problems anymore. Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. We're going to hit this in a big overview. But what, what you have here is there's diseases that deal with personal life, house mold. That's a personal problem. They have private life issues of emissions of body fluid. And what's being communicated is that even your most personal and private preferences are still to honor God. Uh, everything has an effect on thinking about how you move nearer to God and how things are going to be in the future and how the former things are going to pass away and give way to the renewed things. How is it that disease and death came into the world? We read about that in Romans 5.12, which tells us just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. These texts about disease and discharges and the, and the such are a looking at present suffering with an eye toward future glory. That's what's happening in the logic here, to see that the suffering of disease is going to give glory to being separated to God's presence forever. The suffering having mold in your house in this creation is a reminder that the whole creation eagerly waits to be set free from the slavery to corruption. Uh, these purity laws would help people to look past their disease and into God's dwelling place, to look past the mold in their house and the future glory that was to come. It was for them to not consider the present, the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory that was to be revealed to them. 
It was a looking forward to the hope of holiness and the redemption of all things. It was a reminder that God is a curse reverser. He's going to take the curse of death and reverse it into life. He's going to turn death into the best medicine that you'll ever take and the last medicine that you'll ever take. Because after you take it, you'll be healed forever. Isaiah 53, popular chapter on our Lord's substitutionary sacrifices, tells us that part of His atonement is He heals our diseases. Now, we recognize that that's not something that happens in this life, but it's a healing that comes through death and is permanent. But you see that even when our Lord was on the earth and His kingdom was at hand, what happened to unclean lepers when He touched them? They were healed and ready to come and worship. What happened to that woman who had a continual discharge of blood? When Jesus touched her, he didn't become unclean like other priests would have, but she became clean and ready to worship, never to become unclean again, which would lead the person who was familiar with Leviticus 11 to think God's kingdom is encroaching on our planet. He's taking over now. Things are looking like they're supposed to. It was looking forward to glorification. And we have the privilege of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, of light shining out of darkness, glory being something that shines, clean glory shining in the land of where there's also unclean and things that don't glorify God. I'm alluding to 2 Corinthians 4, if you want to read that another time, which reminds us that recognizing these realities, we don't lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, because our inner man is being renewed day by day. Leviticus 11 teaches us about a worldview and witness. It teaches us about it disciples us to be evangelists through living holy lives to God. It's about our personal sanctification and growing in holiness and nearness to God and everything in life. But Leviticus 12 to 15 is a text that it recognizes the sufferings of this life, but it leads you to look beyond them and forward to the glory to come. It's a text that encourage you, encourages one to look beyond this life to the next it's about glorification. It's about the certain hope we have and the God who makes holy. It's a deathbed text for those who understand it. And while you might not read that text in particular to somebody on your deathbed, you might read Paul's teaching on it in Romans chapter 8, which I'm going to close and reading that to you, and I think you'll hear how he's preaching Leviticus 12 to 15, where Paul writes in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For 
Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's close in prayer here. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that the sufferings and perplexities of this life, of diseases, of house problems, of discharges, and all sorts of sufferings will give way to glory, that these sufferings will be former things and not forever things. We pray that you help us to look past the things of this life, to look to the glory of the next, and how even these difficult things all work together to cleanse us, to make us more like the Christ in whose image we bear. We pray that we would not bear his image in vain, but we would live in holiness even in our preferences from the little things of life to the big things to the personal things and the private things, that we would be sanctified by having an eye on the glory that is to come. Thank you for teaching us these things, reminding us of these things. May they be ever before us and constantly on our minds. Amen.